Uh, well, good morning. We are uh, we're in the middle of two different series right now. Uh, we just finished a series called Nothing's Off the Table, where we basically kind of asked the questions that might be uncomfortable to ask in church. Uh, and this week is going to be a one-off, and then next week we're going to launch into a new series. And we're a church for people that don't have it all figured out, and I'm here to tell you we don't know what that series is because we don't have it figured out yet. So <laughs> um, we're going to, though, and uh, part of the message you're going to see why Things kind of got put on hold uh, this week. Um, but this week, I want to talk about specifically uh, this idea of wonder, um, especially as we're going into the, into the fall, into a new year. A lot of the people in our community just kind of randomly it ended up that they're, they're teachers. So this is kind of a big reset moment um, for a lot of us uh, coming into a new school year, coming into new rhythms and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and what I want to focus on is something we don't talk a lot about in the Christian faith. And unfortunately, and this is kind of a bummer on, on just our community specifically, uh, we love to dive into the Bible and get super intellectual and all crazy with it and everything. Uh, and that's super fun and it's really cool. Uh, but I think sometimes what we miss is sort of just the awe and wonder uh, that comes with God. Just the ability to take something in and go like, oh shoot, something is happening in the room that is different. God may be moving here. He may be working here. What we're going to find is that it's not that God may be working here or, oh, I think I really felt the Spirit move there. People will talk about that like, oh, God really showed up. And I always go like, yeah, well, duh. Look, he's everywhere. Anyway, so God specifically, though, as we're opening ourselves up to the fact that he's at work everywhere and that God is constantly doing stuff, a lot of times we can try and, try and capture that moment to the point that we lose it. And what I mean by that is if you've ever had like an experience, like I used to go, so those Mexico trips, the one that we're going to be doing, I used to go on those in high school, uh, and they were some of the most formative experiences of my entire life. Uh, just going and, and being with those people and seeing something that's right across our border and seeing like just the, the disparities. So you're in San Diego, it's beautiful, it's lovely, and you cross the border and you just go, whoa, what has happened? And then you see all the kindness and the children that you're building these homes for, and you, you start playing soccer with them, and you start building relationships with them, and you eat with them. And you begin to notice that, like, whoa, something crazy is going on. But when I would come back from those experiences, and, you know, you come back, you just go back into the school year or whatever, and you try and explain, like, hey, what'd you do this summer? And you try and explain this life-changing experience that you had. It falls flat. There's something about sharing something that if we overextend it, if we just share that story all the time, it tends to kind of, like, lose its luster and its meaning in our own hearts. And so what I want to do is kind of explain that I think the Christian tradition, I think what Jesus is calling us to, uh, is to be students of wonder, to literally take something in and go like, oh my goodness, God is at work here. And this all comes out of this, this story in the Bible of Jacob, and we're going to talk about that this morning, and we're going to talk about, oh, let's just go down the list here, uh, we're going to talk about a, a Hebrew word called vehenna, uh, we're going to talk about capturing wonder. Uh, we're going to talk about a story about my brother. We're going to talk about artists. We're going to talk about a lot of things. But before we do that, let me pray uh, as we dive into this idea of wonder. Lord God, um, thank you for the moments that, that throw us off. Um, thank you for the moments that, that we have to pause, we have to reflect, and, and specifically that we have to behold. Um, I pray that you'd teach us this morning how to be students of wonder and how to recognize it and how to use it. Amen. Um, so I had a, a week this week. My, my brother, some of you know, about a year ago, he had a, a near-fatal uh, motorcycle accident. Like, we really thought we were going to lose him. He tore his aorta, which I didn't know that I didn't know aorta was a thing until he tore it. And they said, like, most people uh, that tear this 
uh, die at the scene. So we don't do the surgery often. So it was really serious and it, and it was crazy, but he bounced back like in a huge way. So it was ridiculous. Like within like three days, he was up and running, he was fine. Um, and it was a miracle. And, and we, like, I always joke with him, and I'm like, you're, you know, you're a miracle, right? And he, he, so he's, he's, he, it was an incredible year just seeing him flourish after that. Uh, and this week on Tuesday, I got a phone call, um, and it was from my brother, and he just basically said, hey, I, uh, my blood pressure is spiking. I'm going to go into the hospital. I don't think it's anything, um, but we're going to get checked out. He works uh, in caretaking, so he caretakes for this 90-year-old uh, uh, lady, and his deal with her is every time she, he takes her blood pressure, She'll take his so they can like trade back and forth. And when she did, she found that it was like through the roof. So uh, he went in, and then they figured out that basically the stint that they had put in uh, had been completely just just wiped away, um, and that he was actually bleeding internally, and he was going to have to go in for the same exact procedure that he did uh, when he got in the motorcycle accident. And if he hadn't come in because of his blood pressure, again, he would have passed away. Uh, so that phone call comes in this week. And it throws me off, and I have to go, what in the world is going on here? And then at the same time, I got another phone call this week. Uh, you'll hear me talk a lot about this guy, Richard Rohr, a ton. I'm just, I'm a Richard Rohr fanatic. Uh, and I got a call this week that, uh, that he had invited me to come with a group of 30 people um, just to go sit and learn from him for like two days in November. And I was like, what? <laughs> so I get that call, and I get the brother call all in one week. And the deal is, they both kind of led me to this moment, uh, and I can say this in this community, of just, oh, shit. <laughs> right? Like, both of those hurt. Both of those were crazy. Both of those were, like, just, just they moved you. There's a reason we cry over something that is terrible and over something that is joyous. There's a reason we laugh when something is super awkward and when something is super, like, joyous and wonderful. We have expressions that just naturally come out, and most of that is an experience, and it's a response to this awe, to this wonder, to the idea that something has happened that now the same way that I was looking at the world has completely shifted. This happens in the scriptures all the time. When Moses encounters the burning bush, God says, take off your shoes because you're on holy ground here, meaning like take your shoes off, that something has shifted. Recognize that there's holiness happening right here. And when we do that, we're doing this long biblical tradition, we're engaging with this long biblical tradition and this Hebrew word called vehenna. Can everyone say vehenna? I just love doing that. Vehenna. Vehenna is this awesome Hebrew word that basically goes beyond just like observe, see. It goes way beyond those things, like the obvious, and it goes straight to the point, which is behold. And actually, one of the coolest words we have in the English language, low, and we don't use low at all, but low is this idea of like, low, like behold, right? Like take this in. And the first instance of this word that we see is in Genesis 29. It's the story of Jacob. And Jacob uh, is one of my favorite characters in the Bible, and he has this really weird story. So Jacob's name literally means liar. Uh, and he's it's sort of a self-fulfilled like, self prophecy because he totally comes into that name. He steals his inheritance from his brother. There's this whole tricksy thing he does with goat hair on his arm. You can read about it sometime. It's wonderful. Uh, but he's on the run from his brother because his brother wants to murder him. I'm sure we're all relating to this story already. So his brother wants to kill him, and he's on the road, and he's running. And as he runs, he encounters God in his dreams and in his sleep. And when he awakes, he looks around. I tell this story all the time in this community, and I love it so much. He looks around, and he says, surely God was in this place, and I, I did not know. 
Surely God is in this place, and I, I did not know. Now, I went through my entire, I grew up in the church, seminary, all of that. I went through all of that, hearing that story, and never really understanding the magnitude of just that one statement. Because you see, Jacob, by all accounts, is a person that should not believe that God is on his side. He has just stolen and lied and cheated his way into an inheritance that's now on the run from his brother who wants to kill him. And yet, in a moment where he experiences God, he chooses to look around and say, God was in this place, and I, I did not know. And I think as Christians, we don't do that enough. That should be a part of our daily prayer routine as we come in and out of different spaces. Surely God was in that place, and I, I did not know. But if there's one thing we can learn from Jacob like immensely, it's that he is an excellent student of wonder. In fact, he's always calling it out. He's calling it out in that moment and then in this moment. So we'll get to that first chunk of scripture here. Um, it says, this is uh, as Jacob is, is running and he's already had this dream. Um, he's about to encounter uh, his wife, Rachel, uh, in this. So he says, then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the sons of the east. He looked, pay attention to this, he looked and saw a well in the field and behold, three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it, uh, for from that well they watered the flocks. Now the stone on the mouth of the well was large. Uh, next slide there, thank you. Uh, when all the flocks were gathered there, they would then roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place in its mouth of the well. So let's pause right here real quick, because this is making no sense. We've got Jacob, and we've got sheep, and we've got a well, right? Um, basically, Jacob is coming on this well, and whenever there's a well in scripture, that's something called a type scene. And if we have any screenwriters in this room or any writers in this room, that, that's going to sound very familiar. But basically, a type scene is something that is meant to bring you back in memory to something else. So when you're at this well, when we see a well in Scripture, we're supposed to go, oh, it's a well. What does that mean? Where else have I seen wells? Why is that important? And basically, anytime you see a well, there's going to be a conversation with a female or a betrothal, which is super interesting. Jesus talks to the woman at the well. Uh, this is a space where... Uh, in, in ancient times, with huge amounts of patriarchy and awfulness, uh, this was not a practice that was done, right? You did not go into public spaces. You did not even address women if you were a man. And if you were a woman, there were only specific times of the day you could actually go to the well. So here's the deal. We're at a well, so we know something is coming. There's going to be some sort of betrothal scene. But why have they added this detail that there's this huge rock on the top? So if you're living in an ancient society, uh, you're going to want to protect your water source, right? And especially if it's the thing that's going to feed your livestock and it's going to actually allow your kingdom to grow. So you're going to put a stone that's going to basically be so stinking heavy on top of the well that not even a bear could come along and knock it off. It would take a group of shepherds to move this heavy stone off of the well. So the reason that they're saying this is because they're giving you context clues to say, here's the deal. There's a massive stone on the top of this betrothal site and it's going to take a group of shepherds to move this thing. We'll watch what happens. Do we have the rest of that, Sean? Uh, nope. Okay, we don't have the rest of that. That's the next scripture. Uh, basically, here's what happens. Uh, Jacob comes to the well. And, and oh, can we go back to that first slide there, Sean? Thank you. Um, I'm being picky. So pay attention to this. It says he looked, he saw, and he beheld. Right? There are three stages to how Jacob is a student of wonder and three stages of how he interacts with a new situation. The first one is that he came and he looked, he saw, right? He just looked. And looked is the obvious. I see that there's a well, I see that there's a big stone on top of it. And the next is that he saw. So he's taking a second to take this moment in, 
Too often, we get hung up on just the look portion, right? Like, I know, I've seen it all before, I know it's going to go on, uh, so I don't need to worry about it. Right? That's the look. And then it says he came and he saw. So he looked, he went beyond that, and he took a second to let this moment do its work within him. So he took a moment and he paused. That means to see is just to go, okay, wait, something's going on here, something is different. And then we have behold, which is that excellent word, the henna. And what he's done is he's gone from just obviously looking at something to really paying attention to something to now letting it transform him, to actually behold it. To behold literally means you're holding on to something. You're going to take it with you. You're going to let something work within you and do its long work inside you. Something about this moment we're seeing for Jacob and Jacob is recognizing is going to be transformative. And what's super awesome about this story is that Jacob looks, he pays attention, he beholds. And then when he sees Rachel coming down, Rachel is the, uh, the daughter of one of his close relatives. We'll talk about that some other time. But uh, Rachel's coming down, and he sees this beautiful woman, and he realizes this is the person I'm going to marry. And so what he does is super movie star-esque. He takes that big stone and just throws it away and gets water for her. And then, in a really bold, weird move, kisses her. And then we have a wedding. We have a betrothal. But here's the deal to allow Jacob to understand that he was about to go into this transformative moment that was going to transform his entire life, he had to look, see, and behold. Look, see, and behold. And I think whenever there is a moment that knocks us off of our feet, the two moments I had this week, the moments you undoubtedly had this week where you just go, what is going on? The proper response, the biblical response here is to look, to see and to behold. And once we get to that behold part, that's the part that's truly going to transform us. When we get to that behold part, we're allowing whatever this moment is, whatever the tragedy or the joy, whatever it is, to actually shape us. And the reason it can shape us is because we're followers of this Jesus. And that allows all of these moments to be teachers, to be transformative, and to be awesome. And you know that because I guarantee you that almost all of us in this room have spent time with someone who's got this kind of personality, who tends to be someone who's really good, just present in the moment. If I could just brag on Richard Rohr one more time, he's the type of guy that's just always in the moment, always with you, always asking questions, always wanting to go. There's a terrific book called Practicing the Way of Jesus, uh, in which there's a guy named uh, Brother Lawrence, and he just, he's so with it, with God, that the writer describes in the, in the foreword of the book, just watching him peel potatoes was awe-inspiring, because he was just somehow so in the, he was peeling that potato, and something about Brother Lawrence being so into peeling those potatoes actually became a wholly transformative moment. These are the people that truly understand what's going on, that each moment can be a teacher. One of my favorite uh, artists in the whole world is a guy named uh, Robert Irwin. And you may not have heard of Robert Irwin, but if you've grown up in Los Angeles, you've seen his work. Basically, he did uh, all the gardens in the Getty, that whole maze thing that you kind of walk through. And all of his work is designed to bring you into the present moment. Uh, he calls it phenomenology, which is basically like the study of how people perceive things. Uh, so whenever you're observing a Robert Irwin piece, the whole point of it is just to make you aware that you are aware. It's not to pick it apart and go, oh, look at these lines and all this kind of stuff. It's to literally step into a space and realize that you're aware. That was his whole deal. 
he, uh, he very famously got hired by a, another museum uh, in Los Angeles, and they wanted him to do this whole room to transform the space. And here's the deal with Robert Irwin. He would not work on a space unless he actually went into it, was moved by it, and then if he was moved by it, he would actually do something. He walks into the space, and he's immensely moved by the space. He's like, oh my goodness, yeah, we can do something here. It's going to be crazy. And then through drama, because he's a very difficult person to work with, just notoriously, uh, they decided to drop him and pull funding and all of that. But that space had still worked within him, and he could not let it go. So what he did is he went to the hardware store, and he goes outside, and he sees that there are these three trees that are sort of just dying, but they're all leaning in the same shape and in the same way. And he comes out of the hospital, and he sees this. And this is on the heels of this hospital just hate, or not, I'm sorry, hospital, uh, this museum just hating him. Like going like, this is the worst guy. Don't give him any money. Get him out of here. Kick him out. They don't want anything to do with Robert Irwin. And so what he does is he sees these trees, and he looks, and he sees, oh, this is a moment. And he goes to the hardware store, and he buys long lengths of rope and basically creates a canvas. So he puts one on the ground, up, up from the way he's pointing. And if you stood and looked through the rope thing, it looked like he had just framed those trees that were now dying. And so the press got a hold of this. They found out there's a new Robert Irwin exhibit at this museum, which is right outside the actual museum. And crowds started coming, and people started coming to see this new Robert Irwin, and the museum was livid. Right? But this is someone that literally looks outside and goes, oh, here's a moment. He was later invited uh, towards the tail end of his life uh, to go speak uh, at a college uh, to do their sort of like um, their commencement speech. And he didn't go to college. He was actually very anti-higher education. And, uh, and so he, he refused. Uh, and, but the college kept pressing. It was an arts college. They really wanted him to be there. And they're like, hey, look, we know this might be the last chance we have. Like, please come and speak. Please come and speak. And he's like, no, 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 no. But day of, he wakes up in the morning, and he decides, I'm going to go speak at that college. So he calls, <laughs> he calls the college up, and he says, hey, I'm going to come, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the commencement speech. And they had already lined up another speaker, like, of course. And they're like, uh, Okay, so he comes and he gets on stage and they put him in a robe and they put him in like the whole hat and everything and he gets on stage, he's gonna give this commencement speech and he walks up and he simply puts his hand on the podium and he says, I wasn't gonna come here today, but I decided to come and just say this. The wonder is still there. And then he left the stage. Are you kidding me, right? You've got, he just comes up and he says, the wonder is still there and then he just mic drops and pieces out. But this is the type of person who is absolutely in the moment. They can come at the tail end of life and to say to this group of students who are going to never forget that moment that the wonder is still there. The greatest thing I can put on you is the fact that even in this stage of my life, the wonder is still there. I'm still seeing things. He wouldn't allow any of his exhibits to be photographed because he thought that that would take people out of the moment. So this is one that did get photographed. We have the, uh, the lights there, Sean. So these are fluorescent lights. Um, and it, yeah, it looks cool. And it's got like the reflection on the bottom and stuff. But this isn't the point of the piece. The reason this was not allowed to be photographed and the fact that it's here, uh, he must be rolling around in his grave. Um, but the reason it wasn't supposed to be photographed is it wasn't supposed to be looked at at all. He wrapped filament around fluorescent tubes, not because of the way it looked, but because of the specific way that it would hum. So when you came into the space, you were hearing something, and it would completely flip you on your head. You're like, I'm supposed to be looking at something, and now I'm hearing something. I'm experiencing something in a different way. The artist's job, and I think the Christian's job, 
is to create spaces, to create conversations, to create relationships that make people aware that they are aware, to change the atmosphere in the room, to take our shoes off, right? To say, truly, God was in this place, and I, I did not know. Because so often we can walk through life and we can just see things and we can pass them right by. If you're not paying attention and you're just looking at that photograph of the exhibit, you're not actually beholding. All you're doing is you're trapped in the look part. You haven't even gotten to see. We're just over here and look and we're not beholding. So my little brother, uh, we grew up for a, a portion of our life uh, in Amsterdam. And uh, before we left Amsterdam, my parents just wanted us to see like all of Europe because they're like, you know, family of five, there's no way we're just gonna be popping back here. So let's go and just see everything. So they take us uh, and we're, we're traveling through like Rome and Naples and France and the south of France. And I was like, I was like 12 at this point, but Brendan was probably around like the age of seven and was just not having it. So we're on this beautiful bridge on the Seine River in France overlooking like there's Notre Dame over there. And then just, just to the left, you can see like the Eiffel Tower peeking above the skyline and the sun is setting and it's absolutely gorgeous. And Brendan just looks up and he's like, I just want to be in New Jersey, <laughs> which is where we were moving. And this is the moment where you go, his ability at seven years old was not to behold, right? He was just seeing this for what it is, going like, I'm tired, and I just want to go to New Jersey. People, there are better places than New Jersey. And if we can't learn to behold, we're going to get stuck in that cynicism, in that negativity. Because every moment, whether it's super joyous or super tragic, has something for us. God has something for us in both of those. It's just a matter of, of being willing to step into it and to say, how can I behold this? How can I actually let this transform me and shape me, do the long-form work inside my soul that I need? And Jesus calls us to this all the time. He is constantly giving us invitations to behold. The whole thing he set up with the table, and I promise you, I will shut up about the table for a little bit because we just did a whole series on it, but the whole thing about communion, about gathering together, the whole reason he did that for his followers was he broke that bread and he gave that wine because he just wanted them to remember. He said, do this in remembrance of me. And I think all too often we get really caught up with the, the frou-frou and the, and the fanciness of doing this in a church building, but you have to understand this was a common meal shared between friends. It was bread and it was wine. It was the equivalent of fast food on the table. They were just having a meal together. So in every moment that we're sitting at a table with other loved ones and we're remembering Christ and we're remembering Jesus, that brings us into communion. It's a practice of beholding, of saying even in this moment, even in this room, even with this simple meal, something holy is going on if you just choose to see if you just choose to behold. And I think we can do this in super practical, awesome ways. As Christians, we're actually called to be these people that are going to capture that wonder to say, no, I'm going to actually let this transform me. And also, I'm going to walk with people and help it transform them as well. But we have to get better at look, going past that see or that look and that see and on to this method of behold. Uh, and I'm going to give you a really practical way to do this. Most of us have access to a camera, right? On your phone, 
maybe it's a digital camera, maybe you still have a Polaroid camera, I don't know what's wrong with you, but if you have any kind of these cameras, right, just start taking pictures of things that cause you to wonder. We don't do that enough. Just snap a photo of it. I have a whole folder in my Evernote. I'm super obsessed with Evernote. Um, I, they retweeted me once. I'm still reeling over it. But they, they have a, the ability in there and just take pictures, right? And you can take pictures, and you can, you can categorize them, and I can put notes with them and stuff like that. So uh, I'm a communicator, and I do sermons, so I'm always looking and trying to find new things. And I'm not sure what I'm going to do with them yet, but I'm, I'm constantly taking pictures of, like, wonder and things that cause me to go, ah. Oh. The other day, there's a, there's a palm tree in my neighborhood that someone had nailed a no dogs allowed sign onto, and it was super hysterical to me because whoever did this did not realize that the palm tree was going to grow, so now the sign is like way up in the air. And I looked at that, and I just snapped a picture of that, and I was like, that causes me to wonder. What am I going to do with that? I have no idea, but it's in the folder, and it's going to work. Kai's on Montana. Has anybody ever been there? It's like a Kyrito place. They make like vegan burritos. You wouldn't? If, good. Don't go there. Anyways, um, <laughs> I was in there picking up food uh, for Chelsea and I, and as I go in there, it's on Montana Avenue, and it's, I walk in, and there's a very, just let's just put it like a very Santa Monica-looking individual in there, and they have a poodle, and it has like this pink bow on the top, and I kid you not, in a plate right next to it, it's eating its own salad. Like, it has its salad. It's like this little poodle eating a salad. So what did I do? I took out my phone. I took a picture of that, and she asked me, are you taking a picture of that? And I was like, yes, I'm taking a picture of this, because it caused me to wonder, what am I going to do with that? I have no idea. Maybe it was just for this moment, but it caused me to go, oh my goodness, what is going on here, <laughs> right? But that's part of it, just even in those trivial little things. Let's see, what else did I write down that I have? Oh, I have, a, uh, I have an entire article I read probably once a week that's called the Council of Tuna. It's three major tuna corporations came together to form a council so that they could like jack up the prices. Again, fascinating stuff. I have no idea how I'm going to use it or why I read it like once a week, but it's there, and it's going to be used at some point because I've captured that wonder. I've captured that awe. And even in the scripture, it's, it's this stuff that like I don't know what this is doing to me in the moment, but I need to hold on to it. That's got something to teach me. That dog eating a Kyrito has something to teach me. I just don't know what it is yet. And I encounter this all the time when I'm reading the scriptures. Something that's been brewing in my head lately is the fact that like, in the book of Mark, Mark is the first gospel it's ever written. And then you have John, and John is the last gospel to be physically written down. Uh, and in that, in Mark, we open up with a family scene where the the parents of Jesus and the family of Jesus are going to a home to basically try and shut Jesus up because they think he's crazy. And that's the famous line of like, those aren't my mother and sister, these are my mother and brothers and fathers and sisters, right? He's, he's, he's redefining family. But in that gospel, they're, they're trying to shut him up. And then once we get to John, which is written three gospels later, all, all of a sudden, the first interaction with family is not trying to shut Jesus up, but they're trying to get him to make more wine. Right? Why in one gospel do we have the family trying to stop him and then later on the family progresses as people progress and as the nature of this text progresses to the family now encouraging Jesus to be miracle workers? I don't know why that transformation takes place, but one day I will. Because I'm going to allow it to do its long-form work within me. That's the whole process of capturing the wonder, of trying to say, like, I'm going to pay attention to this. Let's take a look at a super practical way in Scripture that uh, there's three responses. Um, there's one from the Pharisees, there's one from the crowd in this chunk of Scripture, and then there's one uh, from the blind men that Jesus heals. And pay attention to how each 
section of people responds to the wonder, how they respond to what Jesus is doing uh, in the room. It goes like this. Uh, as Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind man came to him, and he said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. So let's just stick right here for one second, Sean. So um, basically, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, we have never heard Jesus be called this before, except for one other time. It opens up. The whole Gospel opens up. This is the account of the Son of David. Lord Almighty Messiah, right? They're, gonna, they're, they're basically laying it out right in the front that Jesus is the Messiah, and this whole book is going to be about his deeds, what he did, and how he died for us, and, and you're going to see salvation unfold in front of your very eyes. But that's the only time that we see Jesus called the Son of David. Now, and again, it's, it's capturing wonder. It's looking at this and saying, instead of just seeing, looking, we're going to behold. And what's going on here is that there are two blind men, and catch this, two blind men that recognize him for the very first time and call him the son of David, which sets up all sorts of messianic principles and basically declares, Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are the chosen one. And it's the blind men that see this for the first time. Interesting, right? The blind men are actually the ones that are able to call him by his actual name. And now if we behold even further, there are two blind men. In every other gospel, there's one blind man, and then there's two different accounts of this healing taking place, but it's one blind man there, one blind man there. For some reason in Matthew, it's always two. And that could be super simple. We could walk right by that, but you, if you go back into the ancient laws and the ancient texts, it took two witnesses to prove something. Two. You needed two witnesses to actually verify a truth. And so in Matthew, he makes sure that in most of these miracles, there are two people present. See how this unpacks and unfolds, and you're like, whoa. We're beholding something new. So he says, do you believe uh, that I'm able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Uh, we'll, we'll go on to that next slide. Um, then he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. And Jesus warned them sternly, see that no one uh, knows about this. But they went and spread the news about him all over that region. He's a PR genius. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could, and could not talk, sorry, was brought to Jesus, and when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen. So hold on a second. You've got the blind men who have just been transformed, and now you've got the crowd. And I would say, like, the, the crowd is their past look, and they're now at the sea faction of all this. They're going, whoa, nothing like this has ever happened. And that's true because even in the Old Testament, you have no account of a person who is physically born blind or mute being healed out of that. This is all new. So basically they're saying God is doing something new here. This has never happened in Jerusalem. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, but the Pharisees said, and this is the third camp, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Basically, that's not God, that's Satan. Jesus is Satan. <laughs> so you have three different responses here. You have one from the blind men who are completely transformed. They're on the behold spectrum. And then you have the crowd who's willing to step out and say, hey, I don't know if this really is the son of David or if this is the Messiah or anything like that, but I do know this. Nothing like this has ever happened before. So you have them, and they are at that, that sort of that C level. But then you have the Pharisees who, again, they've studied. These are local Bible teachers, right? They've studied the scriptures, and what they're going to declare is not that, like, wow, nothing like this has ever happened, but nothing like this can ever happen. 
I've read it. I know in this book it says there's no way that that can ever happen. He must be of the devil. See, it's three different responses. And I think what's super cool about our tradition and our scripture is that it holds all of those responses. It keeps them in there. Jesus doesn't rebuke either of those three responses. He simply is. He lets the people decide what they're going to do with it, what they're going to do with this moment of wonder, with this miracle, with this transformation. Are you going to simply pass it by and say, nothing like this can happen? Are you going to just dip your feet in the water and say, wow, I've never seen anything like this? Or are you truly going to be transformed by this? Are you going to let this move you? That's the beautiful part of the Christian tradition, and I think way too often. We're doing what the Pharisees do, and we're saying, no, that can't happen. That's not God. God doesn't work here. God can't possibly be working in that space. No way. But the truth is, he's always working, even in the places we doubt the most. We have a choice in the way that we respond to people, to conversations, to moments, to anything. We have a choice. I can look at what happened with my brother this week and I can choose to be extremely bitter and hurt and angry at God, or I can look at it and I can choose to wonder. I can say, well, what is going on here? So on, uh, on Thursday night, I spent my, my second night in the hospital, which is just a great time. Um, and I spent there and very little sleep, because you know, nurses are coming in and out. And then he, Brennan, had, had just gone into his surgery and he'd just come out, so they were touch and go, but it was time for me to go home. Like, I was just, I was done. Uh, and Chelsea had already gone home, and so she took the car, and I was just gonna Uber back uh, from Cedar sinai to Santa Monica, where we live, on, on 9th Street. And, uh, and I walk outside and I pull out my phone, um, and not only was it gonna cost 40 bucks to get back, but it also said it's two and a half hours in the car, and I was like, I'm not doing that. So I, I thought to myself, hey, why don't I, I'll just walk a little bit further outside of this whole hectic Cedars section, just to see if it's a little bit cheaper, a little bit out of the fray, uh, if I get like to say like, you know, Santa Monica Boulevard, West Hollywood. So I walk and I, I walk over to West Hollywood, and it's still kind of the same deal. And then on Google, it'll let you compare how long it'll take uh, to drive as opposed to how long it'll take to walk. And I figured out I could beat the traffic by 30 minutes if I walked. <laughs> so I just kept walking and I thought, oh, I'll, I'll just, I'll just grab an Uber when it gets more convenient. I'll just, I'll just grab a lift when I, when I can. I just kept walking. I walked down Santa Monica Boulevard, starting in West Hollywood, and then I passed Beverly Hills. And I didn't have any music going on. I didn't have anything going. I was just like humming in the, the craziness of the week, almost losing my best friend and brother. And I'm, I'm walking, and I'm walking. And I'm very Forrest Gump-ish. I'm just going, walking. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, I, I said this moment where I, I realized I don't want to get in the car. I never wanted to get in a car. So I decided I'm just gonna, I'm gonna walk home. And then as I'm walking, I'm like, why do I want to walk? Why wouldn't I wanna get home right away? Like, what, what's going on? There's something deeper happening here. And I just kept walking and I kept wondering. And I just decided to start snapping pictures. So I, I took a picture of this. This is the picture of the traffic that I was walking faster than. It was a glorious moment. Uh, and then I came upon Beverly Hills um, and there's this fountain there that I'd never really seen, so I, I snapped a picture of that. And then I looked closer and I looked within the fountain uh, and I found a bird in the fountain. Um, <laughs> is not too keen on birds. Um, 
I, I'm walking, and I'm walking, and I'm walking, and I'm taking pictures of things that are causing me to wonder, and I'm walking, and then I realize, like, the reason I'm on this walk is not because I'm beating traffic or I don't want to go home or anything like that. The reason I'm on this walk is because I really, and I never say stuff like this, but I really felt God saying, hey, take a walk with me. I want to spend time with you. And so as I took pictures of things that caused me to wonder and I kept walking, I felt like I was not alone and that in these moments of wonder, God was truly saying, behold, I'm out here. I'm on the streets. I'm on this walk with you. And you're going to be okay. If we can live our lives in that posture, which I am so bad at, it took a near heart surgery or a heart surgery to get me to that level where I just started paying attention to the fact that God just wants to spend time with me. But if we can be better at that and look and behold and actually see what's going on, the change that's going to happen within us and in this community and in the communities that you're all involved in is going to be huge. Because the whole point of this Christian faith thing is not a numbers game. It's not to get you all saved and all that blah de blah blah The whole point of this is that this truly changes lives. That there is a way better way to live and that there is a Savior that loves you so deeply that he will walk with you even in the strangest of positions. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for, um, for opening our eyes, for being uh, that kind of loving father that's willing to spend time, that's willing to unpack, that's willing to, to just say, hey, look at this, behold, the henna. Thank you for everything that you're doing in our lives. Thank you for being a good, good father. Amen.